It's March 27, 2006, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. Well, it's almost April, and some warmer weather must be just around the corner. Maybe our program this week will give spring a kick start. The National Arts Centre Orchestra plays a program of Stravinsky, Schubert and Brahms at Southern Hall on March 29th and 30th, featuring the virtuoso pianist Marc-André Amelin and guest conductor Stefan Sanderling. Our program opens with Igor Stravinsky's suite from the ballet Polchinella, a work that helped engineer his turn towards neoclassicism. We have Schubert's Third Symphony, straddling the classical and romantic worldviews, and we close with Brahms' monumental Second Piano Concerto. sent his friend Theodor Billroth a copy of the score for his new concerto. Quote, I'm sending you some little piano pieces, wrote Brahms. Of course, those little piano pieces turned out to be the four movements of a concerto so monumental in scope that even far surpassed Beethoven's Emperor Concerto. The joke about the little piano pieces must have reflected Brahms' great concern about returning to an idiom where he had met little success years before. His first piano concerto, premiered in 1859, had met with scorn from public and critics alike. And it took Brahms almost 20 years to try another piano concerto. The first sketches for the second concerto appeared in 1878. Brahms need not have worried for the premiere in Budapest in 1881 was a huge success, and he played the concerto in a dozen European centers that year to great acclaim. In many respects, Brahms brought the classical romantic continuum to an end. He felt no connection to the music of the future, so trumpeted by the likes of Wagner and Liszt. Of the major composers of his era, Brahms was the most conservative, the one most interested in a classical approach to structure, to form. Indeed, he often explored such 18th-century techniques as fugues and passacaglias. The age of the bravura concerto, where the solo instrument is merely accompanied by the orchestra, had begun as early as the 1840s. Well, think of Liszt, Paganini, Mendelssohn, and certainly Tchaikovsky, composers exploring the soloist in the heroic context. But Brahms, in all his concerti, wrote in a truly classical manner, treating soloist and orchestra as symbiotic equals. 
like J.S. Bach a hundred years earlier, also a great conservative, Brahms sums up what went before him. He was able to synthesize the harmonic language of Schubert and Schumann with the Baroque and classical forms of the earlier times. Our soloist this week is the Canadian virtuoso Marc-André Amelin. Marc-André has carved out an extraordinarily individual career as a pianist. His formidable technique allowed him to take on some of the most challenging repertoire for the piano early in his career. Indeed, the International Piano Quarterly has called Marc-André one of the most adventurous and certainly the most courageous pianists of recent times. Under his exclusive contract with Hyperion Records, Marc-André Amelin's eclectic recordings range from concertos by Alcan, Bernstein, Korngold, Shedrin and Shostakovich to solo discs of Alcan, Granger, Kapustin, Liszt. His recording of the complete Godowski studies on Chopin's Etudes won the 2000 Gramophone Instrumental Award. And his latest project is a double album of Albanese, Iberia and Espana. I've had the good fortune of playing with Marc-André on a number of occasions, but this will be my first time hearing him play the great B-flat concerto of Brahms. I should mention that the gorgeous slow-movement cello solo will be played this week by guest principal cellist Lee Duckles from the Vancouver Symphony. want to talk about this week is Stravinsky's Pulcinella Suite. It's a great favorite of mine and not played as often as it deserves. My performing life with Stravinsky has focused on the three great early Diaghilev collaborations, The Rite of Spring, The Firebird, and Petrushka. Unfortunately, these large scores are not familiar to our audiences here in Ottawa, as they require a much larger orchestra than the NAC, which is why I'm particularly happy to tell you that the orchestra will be playing the Firebird Suite in December of next season. Audiences here are more likely to hear the neoclassical works of Stravinsky, the Symphony in C, the Dumbarton Oaks Concerto, or the Dance Concertante. The premiere of Le Sacre du Printemps, The Rite of Spring, on May 29, 1913, has been accepted as one of the turning points in the history of music and dance. Stravinsky's new ballet caused a respectable French audience to transform into a violent and unruly mob. The curious thing is that Le Sacre still sounds fresh and challenging, but its rhythms and harmonies are by now familiar. There remains something so tangibly visceral and exciting about Stravinsky's early ballets. I played a performance of Petrushka a couple of years ago with the World Orchestra, 
in the Marinsky Theatre in St. Petersburg, well, I thought it was just about the most thrilling moment of my career. When I think of Stravinsky, I often think of how akin his career was to some of the great physicists, whose genius most often flower at an early age and whose later lives are sometimes a long denouement. Think of Einstein, whose astounding revelations in the years from 1905 to 1916 were followed by years of frustrating efforts searching for a unified field theory. We tend to focus on Stravinsky's earlier works in the same way that we remember Einstein for his work on special and general relativity. But here, in the 21st century, physics is approaching consensus on the broad unified theory that preoccupied Einstein's later decades. So perhaps in the same way, contemporary audiences will find a consensus on how to listen to the work of Stravinsky's later years. While his later music remains a listening challenge to musicians as well as audiences, there are a group of works dating from 1918 to the mid-twenties that are special favorites of mine. L'Histoire de Soldat, Pulcinella, the symphonies of wind instruments, and the octet. Of these, Pulcinella is certainly the most approachable. Pulcinella is a ballet featuring the characters typical of the Commedia dell'arte. The literal translation is comedy of the profession. It was a kind of theatre that flourished in Italy, especially in the 16th and 17th centuries, and described a manner of performance rather than a particular subject. It was not strictly improvisational. The subject, the characters, and the plot were clearly defined. The material divided into acts and scenes, with scenarios all structured. But within these confines, the actors were left a great deal of room to embellish their parts. Surprise and wit were essential, and the actors were constantly striving to make either the tears flow or the laughter ring. It was this form that truly introduced the professional actor into Europe. Commedia dell'arte was concerned primarily with intrigues about love or money, mistaken identities, even risque situations, Stravinsky's ballet is peopled by Commedia dell'arte characters and is set in Naples, since it is there that the figure of Pulcinella has always been most popular. Harlequin and Scaramouche were the dominant heroes of the plays in other parts of Italy. Traditionally, Pulcinella was a hunchback with a long, crimson nose dressed in a dark cloak and wearing a three-cornered cap. Stravinsky wrote of a Commedia dell'arte performance in Naples in which, quote, the Pulcinella was a great drunken lout, and every one of his actions, presumably every word if I understood it, was obscene. Well, I can safely report that the ballet does not approach this level of coarseness. You can safely bring the children. But the music has an engaging, 
bumptiousness throughout its eight movements. After the end of World War I, Sergei Diaghilev was eager to bring Stravinsky back under the umbrella of Les Ballets Russes, where he had achieved such successes. New ballet productions had withered during the First World War. Stravinsky had used the time to create The Soldier's Tale with the Swiss writer Ramuz. Les Ballets Russes had recently produced a ballet based on works by Scarlatti, and Diaghilev, eager to reignite Stravinsky's interests, thought he might enjoy a similar undertaking. Diaghilev wanted to explore the music of Pergolesi. Now, Giovanni Pergolesi was one of the most important early composers of opera buffa. He had a pitiably short life, born in 1710 and succumbing to tuberculosis at the age of 26, but not before his operas had made a huge impression in Paris, where he was idolized as the model of the Italian style. Anyway, when Stravinsky heard that Diaghilev wanted him to arrange the music of Pergolesi, Stravinsky thought the latter had taken leave of his senses. Stravinsky knew almost nothing of Pergolesi's work and was not greatly enamored of what he did know. But Diaghilev, an experienced musician as well as an impresario, had found some pieces that he thought might make great ballet, and he persuaded Stravinsky at least to look at what he had collected. Well, needless to say, Stravinsky fell in love with what he saw and agreed at once to accept the commission. I should mention that contemporary research has shown that at least half of the source material for Pulcinella does not come from Pergolese after all, but from several of his contemporaries, including Domenico Gallo and Alessandro Parasotti. Well, it really doesn't matter, for the music is quintessentially Italian Baroque. There are similarities between Ottorino Respighi's Ancient Airs and Dances and Stravinsky's Pulcinella, although I must say Stravinsky's sensibilities are more infused in his work. This beautiful music of the early 18th century has become thoroughly Stravinskyized. While he retained the original melodies and bass parts, his phrases are less regular and symmetrical. He elaborates the harmonies, he extends the cadences. The color of the orchestrations are themselves thoroughly 20th century. Although Stravinsky uses a standard classical orchestra, lacking clarinets and percussion, he challenges the performance with a contemporary sensibility. His addition of a rather gruff and courageous trombone part adds a grotesque humor, especially in the duo with the double bass. Stravinsky obviously took great joy in adapting this music, and it undoubtedly made him comfortable with exploring the possibilities of 18th century style with the attitudes of the 20th century. Polchinella ultimately led to what we call Stravinsky's neoclassical period, with works like Oedipus Rex, the Symphony in C, or the opera The Rake's Progress. Well, whatever role the musicologists assign this work, for you as a listener, there's mostly just joy and humor. Pulcinella is a particular challenge to the solo wind players. It's one of those pieces which shows up on auditions for orchestral positions, the true tests of the performer's abilities. 
Listen particularly for the double bass, the trombone, the flute, and the oboe writing, and watch how effortlessly Stravinsky elides one tempo into the next, with seamless ease. It's a great warm-up for this very well-conceived program. Stravinsky, looking back in fondness at his ancient musical roots, Schubert being his unavoidably elegant self, and Brahms, stretching the dramatic and musical architecture of the classical concerto form. will be able to join us. Guest conductor Stefan Sanderling, pianist Mark Andre Amelan and the National Arts Centre Orchestra at Southam Hall this week. Our concerts on March 29th and 30th begin at 8pm. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast. For the National Arts Centre Orchestra, this is bassoonist Christopher Millard. Christopher Millard.